In just a moment, we will read from the fifth chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 5, so I invite you to locate that passage in your Bible. But before we read the text, I want to share a couple of scenarios with you and ask a few questions. Join together in prayer. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, a couple of scenarios to share with you. First of all, scenario number one, assume that you or someone dear to you has contracted a serious illness and you are praying earnestly for healing. Questions. Will the requested healing depend upon the persistence of your prayers? Will the healing be more likely to occur if you enlist a large number of people to pray with you? And what role will faith play in the healing? Because, you know, we have these standard sayings that we often use, the idea that sufficient faith will ensure healing, but insufficient faith will cause a failure of healing. Scenario number two. Assume that you observe someone with a need. Physical need, emotional need, emotional, uh, financial, whatever it might be. And you have the capacity to alleviate that need. Question. What should your response be to the need? Should you assume that you are required to respond to the need because you have the ability to meet the need? We're going to examine this morning an incident in the life of Jesus that might provide some insight for answering those questions. So turn to John chapter 5, if you would, and I will begin reading in chapter 5, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now here John provides us with some background information for uh, a miracle performed by Jesus. And if you look at verse 1, you discover that John has provided us with a somewhat indefinite chronological reference. Most of our English versions will have something like, after these things or sometime later. And it's natural to ask, after what things? 
And of course, if you go back to chapter 4, you will discover that Jesus had returned to Galilee after his visit to Samaria. And we have the account of Jesus healing the son of the royal official at Capernaum. And after these things, Jesus once again returned to Jerusalem. And then in verse 2, John provides a specific topographical detail. He tells us that, as most of our English versions will read, Jesus visited the pool of Bethesda located at the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. And then John Feather tells us that around that pool there were five porticos, according to the version from which I read. Your version might say five covered colonnades. Basically, it was five covered porch-like structures around the pool of Bethesda. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but John has come under a great deal of criticism for this topographical reference. Many scholars have asserted that John has, has, has here a historical and topographical blunder. These scholars have asserted that whoever wrote this gospel was not familiar with the city of Jerusalem in the first century because, according to them, there was no such pool located at the Sheep Gate in the first century A.D. Well, guess what? We now know that the scholars were mistaken and that John knew exactly what he was talking about. The pool of Bethesda has now been located and excavated. As a matter of fact, uh, a number of years ago, when my wife and I had the opportunity to visit Jerusalem, I took a, a picture of the pool of Bethesda. It's part of my slideshow, if I were to show you what we did in Jerusalem. So why were the scholars mistaken in their assertion? Well, I'm sure you are aware that ancient cities frequently built upon the ruins of previous destructions, right? And over the centuries, Jerusalem had experienced a number of destructions, and they had rebuilt on the ruins, rebuilt the city. And the scholars were in error because the archaeologists had not yet, had not yet dug down deeply enough to discover the pool. And so the outcome was John was proven correct, and the scholars had egg on their faces. And by the way, this archaeological discovery also demonstrates something that is, I think, rather significant. The fact that the author was so well aware of this pool located by the Sheep Gate indicates that he was someone who was familiar with Jerusalem during the lifetime of Jesus, which goes a long way towards substantiating the Christian tradition that John, one of the original 12 apostles, is the author of this gospel. Now look at verses 3 and 4. John informs us that around the pool of Bethesda there, were a, there was a large number of sick and needy people. In fact, John says there was a multitude of sick and needy people. The word in the original language that John uses is the Greek word plethos. 
we get our English word plethora. So there was literally a plethora of sick, blind, lame, paralyzed people lying around by the pool of Bethesda. And the fact that all of those sick and needy people were there by the pool elicits a question, doesn't it? Why? Why were all those sick people around the pool of Bethesda? And uh, John, or at least our English Bibles, uh, provide an answer to that question. Apparently, there was the belief that every once in a while, an angel would go down, stir up the water, and whoever was first to get into the water would be healed. So let me ask you this. Do you actually think that an angel would occasionally go down and stir up the pool of Bethesda so that the first person to jump in would be healed? To which you might respond, well, of course I believe that. It's in the Bible, isn't it? Or you might say, well, it's obviously in my Bible, but I think it might reflect a prevalent belief at that time, but it might not necessarily correspond to reality. Now, let me tell you where we're going with all of this. There had to be some explanation, didn't there? Some explanation for why all of the sick and lame people were lying beside the pool of Bethesda. Some reason for them all to congregate there. Well, we know now, because archaeologists have done excavation work, we know that the water in the pool of Bethesda apparently was replenished by underground ducting that came from the pools of Solomon, which were located southwest of Bethlehem. So imagine this. It's not too difficult to imagine that when the gates were opened at the pools of Solomon to replenish the pool of Bethesda, that there at the pool of Bethesda, <clears throat> once the water begins to rise, that the water in the pool would begin to kind of swirl and begin to move around a little bit. And if you didn't know about the underground ducting, you would assume it was being done without any human intervention, right? And you could also imagine that one day when that happened, the water was, sw was swirling, that there possibly was an individual there who put his or her hand into the water and then reported, you know, Ever since I put my hand in that swirling water, I have not experienced a migraine headache since then. And from a report like that, a legend could develop that every once in a while, an angel goes down and stirs up the water. I mean, after all, nobody sees how, why is that water moving around like that? We can't figure it out. Maybe an angel did it. And whoever gets in first will get healed. And, of course, you know things like that still happen today. There are people who visit certain locations because healings have been reported to occur there, right? And so people begin to congregate there, hoping that they will experience a healing. Now, look very carefully at verses 3 and 4 in your Bible. <clears throat> you probably will discover that the last part of verse 3 and the entirety of verse 4 is either placed in brackets or in a footnote with a notation saying these words are not found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. 
In other words, it is very likely that the explanation about an angel coming down and stirring up the water did not appear in the original manuscript of John's Gospel. Now, I won't trouble you with all the textual evidence that supports that kind of a conclusion, but I want to address this question. If these words, the ending of verse 3, the words in verse 4, if those words were not written by John himself, does that mean that there is an error in our Bibles? Not at all. So let me suggest a possible scenario for how this may have occurred. When John originally wrote his gospel, there was no need for him to include the information about the tradition that an angel would come down and stir up the water and whoever gets in first would be made well. He didn't need to write that because everyone was aware of that story. Everybody knew that tradition. John did not need to include it. But can't you uh, think about, you know, as time goes by, this gospel, this document has, is being copied over and over and it's being distributed further and further around the world that one day some of the copyists would be working on the manuscript copying it for their particular locality and some of the copyists would say to their colleagues you know what it just occurred to me one day there are going to be some people in Hannibal Missouri maybe Rensselaer Missouri who are going to be reading this document and they're not going to have a clue why all those sick people were congregated around the pool. We better include that story about the angel stirring up the water so that they will understand why those people were there. Because John definitely said the people are there around the pool. There had to be some reason and apparently that was the legend. John didn't write it. He didn't even say that it really occurred, but that's what people believed, and that's why the people congregated there. And so the legend of the angel stirring up the water began to, began to be included in the margin of certain manuscripts, and later uh, was included in the actual text itself. The earliest manu Greek manuscripts that we have were 5th century when it began to show up. <clears throat> And even when it began to show up, it had all kind of variations and uh, the, scribe, the copyist indicated that they thought the words were spurious, not actually part of the original. But it eventually became included in our text, but probably were not written by the Apostle John himself. Now, does all this make sense to you? I mean, it's not terribly, terribly significant perhaps, but um, just wanted you to understand why it's in brackets or why it did not show up in the oldest, usually considered most reliable manuscripts. But all of this is preliminary to the main event which took place there at the Pool of Bethesda. Look what happens, beginning in verse 9. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that it had already been a long time in that condition, he said to the man, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, 
Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet, and he began to walk. So as Jesus surveyed the scene there at the Pool of Bethesda, he observes this individual who has been sick for 38 years. Now notice, John said he had been sick for 38 years. He did not say he had been lying by the pool for 38 years, okay? And Jesus asked the man a straightforward question. You want to get well? Now, if you had been suffering from a debilitating disease for 38 years, and somebody asked you, you want to get well? How would you answer? I don't know about you, but I don't think I would have responded the way this gentleman responded. And maybe it's just me, but his answer doesn't seem like a genuine answer at all. It seems more like a whiny complaint. Jesus says, do you want to get well? And the man says, essentially, at least it seems to me, he responds, it's just not fair. Whenever that water stirred up, I'm doing my best to jump in and get down there. Before I, but before I can get into it, some turkey jumps in before me. It's not fair. I mean, I think if Jesus had asked me, do you want to get well? And I've been suffering for 38 years. I would have responded, absolutely, I want to get well. Can you help me? Hardly the way this man did. So notice something very, very significant here. Did the man request Jesus to heal him? Did the man ask Jesus for any assistance at all? Not so far as we know, right? And look what John records in verses 8 and 9. Without any further ado, Jesus just up and heals the man. Issues three commands to him. Get up, take up, and walk. And John says, immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now, before we look at the consequence of this act of healing, I need to ask you a few questions. First of all, how diligent was this man in persevering in his prayers for healing? How persistent was he? How many times did he plead with Jesus to be healed of his affliction? Not one single time, right? How many other people did he enlist to pray with him for Jesus to heal him. He didn't even send out a mass email with all the names on his contact list. Didn't ask anybody to help him pray. In reality, the man neither requested to be healed, nor did he ask Jesus to help him. Which leads to this question. Why did Jesus single out 
this particular individual to heal. I mean, after all, there are a lot of other sick and needy people lying around by the pool of Bethesda, aren't there? I think it is safe to say that Jesus was literally surrounded by needs that day when he approached the pool of Siloam, pool of Bethesda. But so far as we know from John's account, Jesus did not heal any other person lying around the pool of Bethesda that day. Why not? Didn't Jesus have the power and the resources to heal every single individual there to meet the need of every person around the pool of Bethesda? Didn't he have the power and the resources to do so? But yet, out of all the needs presented to Jesus, he chose to meet only the need of this particular man. Why? Why? Well, I think John may give us at least a partial answer. I'm not suggesting this is the entirety, but partially. Look in uh, chapter 5, verse, verse 30, where Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, let's join that with another statement by Jesus recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 29, where Jesus says, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus healed this particular man because it was his Father's will for him to meet this particular need at this particular time. But what about all the other people and their needs which confronted Jesus that day? Apparently, the Father did not tell Jesus to meet their needs at that particular time. Now, you and I both know Jesus could have spoken the word and he could have healed all the people there around the pool of Bethesda. Could have done it. Instead, he met, met the need of this one individual to whom God the Father had directed him. And by the way, just as an aside, what do you think the multitude of people lying around the pool of Bethesda did when they observed Jesus heal this, particular, this one individual? Do you think they just calmly watched that man get up, pick up his pallet, and walk off? I certainly think that probably many of them began to plead with Jesus for him to heal them as well. And one more question for you. How much faith, how much faith did this man demonstrate before Jesus healed him? I mean, after all, we've been told repeatedly, haven't we? If you don't have sufficient faith, 
You're not going to get healed. So how much faith did this individual demonstrate? You ready? Absolutely zero. Zero. The man did not ask Jesus to help him. He did not request Jesus to heal him, and he did not express an iota of faith in Jesus. But yet, Jesus healed him. Does that seem bewildering to you? does to me. Now, before we go any further, I'm going to have to be honest with you. Just let you in on a little secret. I don't like this man that Jesus healed. I may not sound very Christian to you, but I don't like him. In fact, if I had been there, I would have recommended that Jesus select somebody else to heal that day. I mean, it blows my mind that Jesus chose this individual to heal. And in a moment, I'll try to show you why I don't like this guy. But let's look at what happens now, following in verse 9, uh, the last part of the verse. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is a Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They said, or they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed, watch this, did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Now, I want to draw your attention to several details in this narrative without taking much time to explain them. But first of all, who were the Jews whom John mentions in verse 10? The Jews. That phrase is virtually a technical term in John's gospel. He used that phrase to refer to the hostile Jewish religious authorities. It's not a reference to Jewish people in general, but rather specifically to the hostile Jewish religious authorities. And what was the response, according to verse 10, of these Jewish religious authorities to the miracle which had occurred? If you look at verse 10, you'll discover they completely ignored the miracle and focused instead upon the fact that the man was carrying his bedroll on the Sabbath. And therefore, they accosted the man for violating their oral law and their traditions. Now, look at verses 11 and 12. To defend himself against the accusation of violating the oral law, what did the healed man say he who made me well was the one who said to me pick up your pallet now I don't know about you but I find that fascinating he who made me well he, the, the man has been healed and now the authorities jump his case for carrying his pallet um, on the Sabbath violating some of their traditions and his response to them when they challenge him is, hey, don't blame me, the guy who healed me. He's the one who told me to carry my pallet on the Sabbath. Now, I don't know about you, but that does not endear me to him at all. 
Guy who, he who made me well told me to carry my pallet. And look at verse 12. How did the Jewish religious authorities respond to that? Did you notice what they completely ignored? Who told you to carry your pallet? The guy who healed me told me to carry it. And the Jewish religious authorities completely ignored the fact of the miracle and instead focused upon who is the man who told you to pick up your pallet and carry it? You know, they comp it's as though the man never said, I got healed. Hey, a miracle occurred. Religious authorities don't pay any attention to that. They're only focused upon the man who told you, pick up your pallet and walk. And how did the healed man identify the one who had made him well? Verse 13. You notice he did not have a clue to the identity of who had healed him. He didn't know that it was Jesus. He didn't know who Jesus was. And you know, it's kind of difficult to exercise faith in someone you do not know. All right? Now look at the conclusion of the narrative. Verses 14 and following. After Jesus, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. A couple of facts stand out in these three verses. Fact number one. Pardon me. This particular man's illness was apparently the result of sin in his life. Now, of course, we have to be careful here because not every sickness is the direct, direct result of some specific sin. But in this case... It was. Fact number two. This healed man was an ungrateful tattletale. Once the man learned the identity of the one who had healed him, what did he do? Did he run to Jesus and fall at his feet and express profuse gratitude for his healing? No. He ran directly to the Jewish religious authorities to turn Jesus in. It's almost as though he was thinking, okay, I found out who healed me, now I can turn him in to the Jewish authorities so that he can get in trouble. Can you see now why I don't like this guy? And why I identify him as an ungrateful tattletale. And he succeeded. He got Jesus into serious trouble with the religious authorities. But now, let me ask, what lessons can you and I draw from John's account of this miraculous healing? I want to suggest three lessons, three lessons. There's more, but we'll focus on three this morning. Lesson number one, the need does not necessarily constitute the call. 
the need does not necessarily constitute the call. Just because we are confronted with needs does not necessarily mean that we are called to meet those needs at that particular time. Like Jesus, we are literally surrounded with the needs of hurting people. But the needs themselves, the needs themselves do not necessarily mean that we are called to meet those needs. Now, how on earth can I possibly make a statement like that? Let me give you four reasons. Four reasons. Reason number one. Some people are in the situation they are in because God has placed them in a special classroom. He's trying to accomplish something in their lives. And if you and I rush in to alleviate their needs or to change their circumstances, we may find ourselves hindering the purposes of God. And God would just have to take that individual and place him or her in another classroom in order to accomplish the purpose he wants to achieve in that person's life. Reason number two. God may want to use someone else to meet that particular need and he is patiently working in that individual's life to bring him or her to the point of obedience. And if you and I were to run in to try to meet the need instead of allowing God to work in that person's life, we might end up depriving them of the blessing God intended them to experience. Or we might prevent them from progress in their own spiritual development because we just jumped in without thinking. We just saw the need and said, well, I've got to meet it. Maybe God had someone else in mind to meet that need, and he was working in their lives. Reason number three, it may not be God's time to remove or to alleviate the needs which we observe. He may not have achieved the purpose for which he permitted those needs to exist. And the fourth reason, reason number four, the example of Jesus at the pool of Bethesda. He met the need of one man, surrounded by massive need. On that particular occasion, he apparently met the need of one particular individual. So how do we determine if a need is one which we should act to alleviate? Well, that, that leads to lesson number two. Lesson number two, determine the Father's will before attempting to meet any need. When we see a need, we need to ask, Father, does this need constitute a call for me to respond? And if it is your will for me to respond to this need, do you want me to do it right now or later? What's your timing? What's the schedule? And then once we determine God's will, we must obey His will no matter what, just as Jesus did. 
And let me warn you that if you and I obediently follow the example of Jesus, we better be prepared for other people to misunderstand our actions and our decisions. They may criticize us for not immediately responding to some obvious need. They might impugn our Christian commitment, our compassion, our love, our judgment, if we decide not to intervene in some particular situation. But let me ask you this. Shouldn't our decisions be based upon seeking God's approval rather than that of our peers? Lesson number three. God's sovereign decision to heal in a particular situation may or may not be dependent upon someone's faith. You know, we read in the Bible <clears throat> that sometimes an individual demonstrated sufficient faith to be healed. For example... On his first missionary journey, Paul visited the city of Lystra where he encountered a man who had been lame from birth. And we read in Acts chapter 14, verse 9, uh, verse 9, this man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, Apparently the man had faith, and it was obvious to Paul that he did. When he had faith to be made well, Paul said with a loud voice, Stand, up, stand upright on your feet, and he leaped up and began to walk. An individual who demonstrated sufficient faith, and he was healed. But John's account of the man who had been sick for 38 years demonstrates that when he chooses to do so, God may sovereignly heal someone. Someone who expresses no faith at all. Someone who does not even know the identity of Jesus. Someone who never explicitly requests to be healed. Someone who never ever expressed any gratitude for his healing. Someone, and I almost said someone who does not deserve it. And certainly the man that we just read about in John chapter 5 did not deserve to be healed. But you know what? The truth of the matter is, none of us ever deserves any gift God gives to us. And that, of course, is why it is called grace. Grace. Let's join together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, it kind of goes against what we often teach or hear or think to consider that it may not be your will for us to meet every need that we encounter. Now, we know we're not always capable of meeting every need, but we often feel guilty for not meeting needs. 
And perhaps sometimes we need to be guilty because we are for not doing what we should have done because you wanted us to respond. But Lord, I pray this morning that you would give each one of us perception, discernment, insight, and a commitment to follow the example of Jesus. The Apostle Peter wrote in his first epistle that Jesus left us an example that we should walk in his steps. So, Father, may we do that. Walk in his steps and be sensitive to your leading when we encounter needs. Seek your will and your direction and respond in absolute and complete obedience. Lord, we thank you so much that you have chosen to meet our needs. In our Savior Christ Jesus, you have provided for our salvation, the healing of our souls, the death that each one of us experienced until we were born again into new life. Thank you so much for your love. We pray for your protection upon the members of this congregation as we are experiencing the virus and the illnesses and the difficulties in life that so many are encountering. Lord, we ask for your blessings, for your protection, and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.